This is Toka US brand manager, Ian Harvey. I'm here with Bill Koch. Um, the connection might not be as good as it has been in the past because we had some technical difficulties, so we're on a phone. Regardless, Bill Koch is, has, is and has always been one of my absolute idols. He is the 1982 overall Nordic Ski World Cup champion, the Olympic silver medalist from 1976 in Innsbruck, which he won when he was 20 years old. Bill's the bronze world championship medal winner from 1982. He was third in the overall World Cup in 1983. The ski league that I grew up participating in, the Bill Koch Youth Ski League was named after him. He was the flag bearer for the US Olympic team in 1992. And he is a legendary pioneer and icon for US Nordic ski racing. It is one of the great privileges of my life to conduct this interview Bill, thank you so much for accepting my invitation and being here today with me and the American Ski Public. It's my privilege, thank you. <laughs> Can you please uh, start out by telling us how you started skiing and ski racing? I started skiing actually on a old pair of wooden alpine skis on my lawn. My dad put me out there when I was about two years old and I fooled around in the grass and um, got used to them. And um, the first real memory I have of, of, you know, really skiing is actually ski jumping, um, which is a big sport in Brattleboro. We have Harris Hill, Olympic size jump, and it was the thing to do in town um, when I was growing up in the 60s. And um, hundreds of kids would come out two nights a week. Um, and so I was a ski jumper until I realized cross country existed because at a ski jumping competition, they had a Nordic combined meet. And I saw that and went, whoa, I want to try that. And, um, and so my jumping coach took a pair of junior skis, uh, short jumping skis, which had three grooves and ripped the sides off the jumping skis to make them narrow. And so that's what my first race was on a pair of cut down jumping skis. And dad told me if I win the race, I could get a real pair of skis. And I won the race and then, you know, it went on from there. So, and um, shortly after that, you know, once I realized that uh, I had really found something, um, that's when I met Bobby Gray up in Putney and got going with the Putney crowd. And it's just lucky I happened to live next to them. Otherwise, I would have had no idea what I was doing and would have not known how to train or do anything and just wouldn't have done anything. So I was pretty lucky. <laughs> Fantastic. Can I ask you a question? I grew up on skis as well and in a ski family. Since you started skiing at two years old, I have to think that skiing was a family activity for you all, cross-country skiing? Actually, um, dad um, was not really a skier, but he really loved ski jumping. And even though he had not really been a skier, he got involved with ski jumping. And he uh, ended up, uh, there was actually a 50 uh, near Brattleboro. And he, my dad went off that 50, not being a skier. I was scared for him. <laughs> oh. Um, so there was a little, but no, not my family, you know, my mom or my, my grandpa, uh, my family from that area, not skiers at all. 
So, well, I just grew up in the right place. <laughs> sure did. Okay, so yeah. if you wouldn't mind, please talk about the transition from ski jumping to skiing and Putney Ski Club and your involvement with Bob Gray up until you started to compete internationally. Well, um, as soon as I discovered cross-country skiing, I really immediately started to get serious about training. And so I ran to school, biked to school, skied to school every day, never took the bus. Um, and that's how I got my base. That's how I learned to ski because there was no groomed trails or anything. It was all just, you know, whatever you could make do that day. So um, I learned to ski that way. And um, when I was 10 or 11 is when I met uh, Bobby up in Putney and uh, Martha and uh, Timmy and um, all the uh, people that train up there. And they took me under their wing, Bobby did, and showed me all the ropes. Um, first time I ever trained with them, they, they invited me for a bike ride. And um, I started from home um, on my one speed <laughs> swim <laughs> bike with the <laughs> basket and a bell and a luggage rack and, and rode up to meet them. And they all show up in their cars with bike racks and 10 speed bikes and we proceed for a very long ride in which I was able to actually stay with them as a and so they all thought Ooh, we, let's keep this going and we did so <laughs> I couldn't have grown up in a better place with better people to train with that's the, really the bottom line I'm everything I did was standing on the shoulders of people before me who broke the ground Otherwise, what I did would not have been possible. So, uh, a couple questions. First, you mentioned Timmy, which would be Tim Caldwell. Yeah. Martha would be Martha Rockwell. Martha Rockwell. Yep. Bobby Gray. Uh, a, a great friend and hero as well. Um, and you mentioned everything you accomplished or everything you've been. It was started previously with Bob Gray and perhaps someone before Bob even. Um, oh, yeah. Most people, when they think of the U.S. ski team and the U.S. US ski team successes in your generation, which were, of course, amazing, they kind of start with you and with John Caldwell. It's, it's gratifying to see you starting with Bob Gray and who knows previous to that. But the Southern Vermont, it seems like one person can often, often have a great effect on the area. Like with me, it was Dusty Johnstone. I grew up, Dusty Johnstone was the pioneer in our area. And we had 14 kids from our little area go to junior nationals and two Olympians. And it sounds like Bob Gray for your generation was that, that person, huh? Yeah. Well, it really started with Johnny. Um, and Bobby came from Johnny mm. and I came from Bobby. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and Johnny too. Um, Johnny was the coach at Putney school and that's where I went to school. So. Super. Okay, um, can you connect the dots between where you are now, where you just described, and competing in 1974 at the European Junior Championships? Because you got really good. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it kind of, you know, it was a long road just to get to the first, my first you know, world juniors, which back then was not world juniors. It was European juniors. Um, and they changed the name, but not the event was the same. Um, 
And, um, you know, that was 73 when I went to my first World Juniors. So it was quite a long road to get there from, from where I started. Um, and through it, I went through a major disappointment of um, missing my first Olympics that I, I belonged in. Um, and so I was bitterly disappointed by that and had to overcome that and decide uh, I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. Um, I was actually decided to shoot for eight 1980 at that point, um, thinking that it would take me that long to develop all the way to a medal. Um, and so 76 kind of came a little sooner than I expected, although in that year wasn't unexpected. Anyway, I'm rambling. You go on. <laughs> so, so a question you, you, I have to ask. You would have been 16 in the 72 Olympics. You were, yeah. you were a strong contender. And in, in your mind, you were expected to make those games? I totally expected to make those games. Yes. Oh. Um, yeah. I was trying out for both the Nordic combined and the cross country uh, Olympic teams and both trials were in the East here and the schedules were dovetailed so that I could actually be trying out for both teams at the same time. Wow. And so halfway through the trials, I was actually making both teams. And then uh, a decision came from above that said, you cannot try out for two teams. You have to choose one. I chose Nordic Combined because that's the team I had made with the U.S. ski team. And um, after I had done well in junior nationals, I got named to the team, the Nordic Combined team I got named to. Um, so I chose Nordic Combined and then had a very, very nasty fall on Harris Hill uh, in my trial round of the last competition. Um, took a little ambulance ride, took a nap, um, and I was really drugged up for the competition the next day. I broke both my skis. I drifted off the hill because there was a crosswind. I landed in the signposts of the distance markers, and uh, I was a mess. And I had to uh, jump on um, skis I'd never skied on before, which is really weird in ski jumping because you get really used to flying your own skis. So. Um, I came up a little short and I just, I missed it by a couple hundreds of a point. And, um, and so that, you know, that really like took it out of me and it took a while to kind of get myself back together and just figure uh, uh, this is something I really need to do. So. So what, what was called the European junior championships, which is basically the world junior championships in this day and age, you competed in those in 73 and 74? And 75, three years. And 75. Yeah. And, um, so 73 was your first international competitions. Do you remember how those competitions went and kind of how you felt being a, a first timer at those competitions? And where were they, please? Very distinctly do I remember. <laughs> because in my very first uh, international race, I went ahead and missed my start. <laughs> They were in Leningrad, Russia, Whoa. and uh, I missed my start. But I still got a time, and I don't remember where you know I was, but I, but it was a good result, and uh, I knew even though I, you know, I missed my start by so much that I wasn't even you know in the top twenty on the official, but I knew I was pretty close to the top ten or somewhere in there. So I felt encouraged, even though I missed my start, and so that's why I thought the next year I could maybe 
you know, get a medal. And in those days, in 1973, in those races that you missed your start in, was there an one individual race in a relay, or what was the format? It was a one individual 15 and a three-by relay. So that was it. You missed your chance for the individual and to wait one year until the next one. Huh. Well, that's remarkable. The, the great Bill Koch missed his start in his first international race. It gives a lot of us hope. <laughs> I always like to cut it close because I like to be as warmed up as possible. I like to get in that gate just red hot. And so I always cut it as close as possible. And I sure screwed that one up. <laughs> Uh, was this because it was harder to get to the start because sometimes the obstacles that are involved in international racing or was it or is it just the way it was what happened my, memory, my memory's not that good sorry okay. <laughs> and in 1974 where were those races uh they were in Ultron, france huh and you i'm won pretty the sure bronze. that's where they hmm? you won the bronze medal yeah so that was the first non-european ever to win an international medal in cross-country ski racing I'll take your word for it. <laughs> That's my understanding. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your experience in that race, please? Well, I, I went in there um, feeling pretty good um, that I belong there. And um, no, I, I, I really don't remember much about it. Um, but obviously I had a great race and it's a funny thing, you know, I, uh, there's so, so many, as I get older, um, my memory is, I can't remember one race from the next sometimes, and they get mixed up, and I, two things come together, and so some, some things I say may not be totally accurate, <laughs> and you probably know better than I do. I found that with Mike Gallagher. Mike Gallagher knew twice as much about the details of my racing than, than I could remember. So you probably do too. <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious, obviously learning curve wise, getting the start on time, you know, that's a big one. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, did, I did world juniors in cross country in 85 and 86. And in 85, my first start, I, I jumped in behind a Finn who was actually racing on course. There was very little course control back then. So he skied by, I jumped in behind him, I skied my first, the first K of the race behind him, and then quickly turned around and went to the start and then started. And I had a decent race, and I was surprised after the race to find out that that Finn had ended up third overall, and I skied with him fairly comfortably for that first kilometer, but at two kilometers, I was surprised to find that I was 20 seconds behind that same guy. And so that was my first part of the learning curve where I knew physically I had something and I was quite prepared, but mentally I had a lot to learn. And I wonder if you had experience along those lines where besides missing your start, which is a good one, but you know, when you're fairly new to racing, especially international racing, and you realize you had gobs to learn and experience to gain. You just have to realize, um, and I feel fortunate that I did realize from a very young age that um, we have, uh, X potential as human beings to achieve a certain result and what we choose to put our energy into, in my case, ski racing. And, um, and that potential is so infinite. It is so great that we can't really even comprehend its actual 
um, capacity. So if you start with that uh, assumption, then every time you win a race, every time you think you just had a really great result, you will realize that you are still nowhere near your potential. No matter how well you do, you're still nowhere near where you could be. You don't even realize where that is. It's so far above where you can even think. So just that attitude, go in with that attitude. Every time you have a great race or a bad race, immediately, that's when you get your best learnings. That's when you, you can figure out um, how can I get closer to my potential than what I just did. And do it soon, because if you go party and, 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 and celebrate too much, it'll all go past you and it'll be hard to retrieve. So it's those moments after when you're most like, uh, especially if you had a good race, you're most likely to forget the learnings because there's so much going on. But that's when you get the biggest learnings. Like you just had a really great race, um, but it's still nothing. Like there's way, way, way more to go. And I don't care if you're Jesse Diggins or um, um, <laughs> who's the woman from Norway or Keegan or Johak. It's the same thing. It doesn't matter how fast you are. You're nowhere. That's a very exciting perspective that you're sharing. And it's, an, it's a perspective that emphasizes the battle with oneself in the, on the path to excellence as compared to maybe the short-sighted, small-minded, I just need to beat the people to the left and right of me kind of a thing. But that's a true path to excellence, that, that perspective, which is remarkable. I think it's important to really think of it in terms of your own personal potential rather than beating other people. I think you'll go further that way. Uh, at least I did. I mean, I shouldn't say something like that because everybody is so different. I mean, I'm sure there's people where beating other people would work way better than my method. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll back up on that one. <laughs> It's a way, say, anyway. you know, everyone has different things that kind of motivate them. Yeah. And perhaps some people need the specter of, uh, of someone training 24 right. seven to, um, and also well, in see, an age with so much head to head racing, you really do need to beat the person next to you. That's the thing. But at the same time, Bill, we're really about trying to achieve excellence, you know, achieve our potential, as you say. And, and to me, that's the beautiful part of the sport is the battle within, overcoming your weaknesses, unlocking your own potential. So I think that what you're describing is truly the grand goal as compared to the smaller, the smaller goal of beating the person left or right of you. And to be fair, uh, we didn't have a lot of mass starts. Mass starts were not a thing. I mean, there were some, but they didn't count for anything. Just um, relays, pretty much. You know, just relays were the only mass starts and they, um, uh, are in their own category. Like, so if you're trying to win the World Cup, mass starts don't mean a thing, right? Um, it's all individual. And now it's mostly mass starts. And so, of course, you got to be thinking differently than what I was thinking. 
because there's you got to beat these other people so you got to figure out strategies to do that but still behind all of that i would still say you know reaching your own potential will be the foundation for doing the modern racing um with mass starts so i think so so i guess we can go to 1976 now you were uh 20 years old competing in innsbruck the first race of the event seemingly out of nowhere you win a silver medal can you describe that day please well um first of all it wasn't out of nowhere because uh, the two world cups before that they weren't official then but they were the you know the world cups um um, everybody there, I was, um, I, I got two podiums. So I knew I was in the hunt. Uh, I, I was on the podium. Russians weren't there. So they were, so in the first race, I, you know, I, I got the silver medal. I wasn't surprised cause I had just been racing that fast all month. Um, and so it was just down to the Russians, um, the wild card and, um, and in a way, um, yeah, uh, it could have been the big prize, but in a way, it's kind of a, um, a, a little bit of a medal of honor for me to have been a doping sandwich in, in the Olympics in 30, because um, even though it didn't show up, I know in my heart, I know what I really did. I... I um, I didn't quite beat the cheaters, right? But I could have. That's the main thing. It was 28 seconds to the gold. I could have found 28 seconds. I had way more potential than what I showed that day, no matter how fast I went. I knew that. So it's just when I know I'm competing against people who are doping, it, it really almost motivates me even more because I want to prove that it is possible to beat cheaters clean. And I know it's harder today because cheating has gotten way more sophisticated, but I do, and I'm not doing it. So I'm probably just talking into blue air, but I do believe it's got to be still possible. So and Jesse's day, proving it. Jesse's proving it. Yeah. Yeah. So on that yeah. day, if I remember correctly, the Russian who ended up winning gold started very late. Is that? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the other thing about uh, that day. So that day happened really because we took a, a risk of starting in the first seed. Um, you know, usually you like to start back. Uh, usually the tracks are a little faster in the back seeds, and then you get um, split times, and those are helpful. And you start in the first set seed, you don't get any splits, and, and you're just kind of running scared, right? So um, not really, but um, so we took that chance because uh, alpine weather in February, uh, sun goes up pretty high, gets pretty hot, and things change really fast mid-morning. And uh, I just thought, I'm going for the ice. I'm going for the icy snows and see what happens. And it worked perfectly. And um, the fact that Savelyev came from, I think, the third seed to win by 28 seconds. I mean, he was you know, almost certainly juicing, but pretty impressive. 
um, from the third seat that day because it did slow up. I mean, it was the perfect strategy to take the first seat. So I didn't know about your results previous to the Olympics, but I do know that you were sixth in the 15K in those same Olympics, which clearly testifies that you were, you know, that the silver medal actually wasn't a shocker. That's how good you were. Yep. (laughs) At least right then, that's how good I was. I was totally peaking. (laughs) So So post-Olympics, I don't remember hearing much about you until 1982. Did you compete, for example, in Lati in the World Championships in 1978? I was there. (laughs) (laughs) I, after 76, I had no idea. I never even thought about what life would be like if I won a medal. In fact, like, until the few weeks before 76, I, I didn't know I was going to think I could win a medal right in those Olympics. I was focused on 1980. So it was all a big surprise. And so was all the attention. Just, um, I couldn't handle it. I, it was a shock. I just quit. <laughs> I, I sat out 77. Uh, got married, had a kid. Um, I wanted to learn farming from my gramp and I wasn't sure if I was going to race again um, until fall came around. And I thought, I, I just, it was just in me. I, you know, I did have to quit and then I did have to decide to come back. It was just my process. And, but quitting, uh, it took me many years to come back from that. Uh, taking a year out isn't something I would recommend. <laughs> it, it took me a long, long time. So I was at 78, but I was just an also ran there. Uh, 79 had a, actually a pretty good year. I won uh, my first international race in 79. Um, and so I thought, yeah, cool. And I thought 80 is going to be my year. Um, local turf. And I thought 80 is my time. Well, it didn't work out that way. <laughs> uh, and we can go into that, but I don't want to ramble too much. <laughs> oh, no, please. Uh, I can tell you from my perspective in 1980, I know the, I think it was NBC, whatever this, whatever this, uh, the broadcast network was that was carrying the upcoming Olympics, um, carved out a bit of time because of the expectation of you doing so well. And then they showed, I remember watching the footage and they showed Mike Gallagher wearing his typical two hat, extra warm, you know, that was kind of chilly and yelling at you as you went oh, by on a hill. Yeah. And then, um, and then the next thing they showed was an interviewer saying, hi, how come you didn't win? And you were like, well, it's pretty tough out there. You know, it's quite a lot of competition. And he's kind of like, well, yeah, but you're Bill Coke. How come you didn't win? And I never forgot that because it really angered me and disappointed me that the way that you were treated, but I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that day and on the Olympics. The media from the United States, other than ski journalists, have no concept of cross-country skiing. It's just not our national sport like it is in Norway. So it's just, you can't get upset when they, I mean, it is upsetting. Like, right before the race, they asked me, so Bill, you going to sweep the Olympics? <laughs> it's like, well, it's possible. I do believe it's possible. I mean, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to sweep the Olympics, but... 
is it really going to happen? Probably not. But if I didn't believe it could happen, it obviously never would happen. So we'll see what happens. Well, it wasn't happening in the first race. I, I was so far off the pace in that first race. And to me, it seemed perfectly logical that I had the rest of the Olympics to think about. I was only going to drain myself by even finishing 40th place in the 30 and then being drained for the rest of the Olympics. It didn't make any sense to me. So I pulled out and boy, did I pay. The national media slaughtered me. They just like called me a quitter. Um, what would I say to my Bill Coke leaders and all that? And I, I was like, put yourself in my shoes. I got the rest of the races to do. If I finished that 30, I wouldn't even have had a chance. I had to rest and get ready. Nobody understands. If the same thing was happening in Oslo, Norway in 1980, and the same thing happened to me, everybody would understand. But that's just the way it is. You know, you can't. So, whatever. <laughs> I guess sometimes that's the, uh, the only way to cope with something like that when people don't understand and they're coming from a position of ignorance is whatever. <laughs> well, and it was so hard because um, coming into the Olympics, I wanted international experience um, right before the, like in 76, I had World Cups right up to the Olympics. I got tuned up, raced those guys, knew I could take them and went into the Olympics where in 80, no such thing. Nobody would let me. There was no World Cup leading up to the Olympics. I petitioned to several different uh, countries like Norway to let me in their um, nationals so I could get, you know, high level racing. No, no, no. I was on my own in Vermont. No racing, no high level anything. And there was no snow. So I'm roller skiing through the month of January getting ready for the Olympics. Even in Lake Placid, if you remember, there was no snow. They had to snow all the courses. Yeah. And while roller skiing, it was a nightmare. I took two horrible crashes. Just got all skinned up and you know, sticking to the bed sheets for days. And I was just, I arrived in Lake Placid pretty disheveled, but still thinking, I'm here to do a job. And it just didn't work out that way. And that's how it works. Like um, I missed my first Olympics for basically you know, politics. I missed, I, 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 I got more than I expected in my second. I came up really dry in my third where I wanted, where I thought I would. In the fourth one, I thought for sure, that's gonna be my best chance for gold. Um, nope. So it's like, um, that's part of ski racing. Even someone like me, people think, oh, what a storied career, all oh, you know, medals and World Cups. No, They're like those are the high points. There's a thousand woes for every high. And if you can't weather that, you might not make it. I mean, and 
the act of weathering it all makes you tougher. So just never give up. If, if you have the passion and if you believe in yourself, just never give up. Cause, because you have no idea what might happen. Things unexpected happen. So just never give up. And if you come up short, just if you have done it for the right reasons and you're into the process rather than the results, you have your cake for the rest of your life. If you're doing it for the wrong reasons and you come up short, Lord help you. Exactly. And that's kind of like what I meant when you're talking about achieving your potential as compared to trying to beat the person next to you because when you're trying to beat the person next to you, I think it changes the standard or the expectation of success. So like if you're trying to achieve your potential and you can have a success and not win, it's, it's really about yeah. your definition of what a success is. Whereas if you're just beating the person next to you, number one, you have no control over how they perform and how talented they are or if they dope or not. On the other hand, you can have a bad day and win a good day and lose. And, you know, and truly, that's the important part, I think, is I've had great races and not had a good result for whatever reason. I've had pretty good days and I've had a great result. And I do think it's important for the racer to have control over the definition of a good day. I think that's healthy. Good days where you laid it all down. Yeah. Okay. After 1980... It seems like you took your own path again. <laughs> I don't remember seeing your yeah. name in 1981. Where were you? After, after 1980, I was, you know, pretty disheveled, not knowing which way was up. And I got invited over to Sweden for this river race in Sweden where the organizer wanted to have a, um, like a shootout between World Cup skiers and World Lopet skiers to prove which was faster, skating or classic. So I went and field, uh, mostly World Lopet skiers, but uh, a few real key uh, World Cup skiers too. And the, guess what? The World Cup skiers got their clocks cleaned. Uh, we all waxed and they didn't and they skated and we classic skied and um, the guy that started 30 seconds behind me quickly caught me. You know, uh, um, one of the better racers in Sweden, but not a gold medalist or anything, um, ate me alive and went right by me. And I went, whoa, um, look what he's doing. It's nothing. It wasn't like new to me. Like I've skated all my life, but just never thought of it as like, oh, I thought of it always before as here's what I'm going to do on the corners. Here's what I'm going to do if there's a long flat straightaway with lots of room that I can V2 skate all the way down through there. Just spotty, not like constant all the way through the race. Like what that guy was doing, I just copied him. Easily stayed with him, even with my wax. And um, blew him off at the end and almost won the thing. I think one of the other guys got me. And it's just so obvious, like, this is what I need to do. It's so obvious that this is faster. And so it's just like almost unbelievable to me 
uh, we're about to lose. Oh. Um, battery? Oh, everything just went off. <laughs> Is there a way I don't know if you're still there. The Is there a way for you to plug the phone in? She's running for a plug. <laughs> okay. All right. That's a that's a remarkable story. And I think. All right. Can you still hear me, Bill? I hear you, but I can't see you. That's and okay. You can't see me, probably. So uh, that's one of the the things I kind of wanted to focus on here because it's kind of legendary. Um, were either those two racers that were skating or more than two racers, um, well-known? Do you remember their names? Um, Bjorn Risby just popped into my head. Um, one of them was Bjorn Risby. Oh, I, oh, could have been Seaton and I I'm not sure. I can't remember. So most people call it the Seatonen technique, at least when it was developing. So you think maybe he was in that race and he was one of those racers? Yeah, pretty likely. But no, I'm not, I can't remember for sure. Uh-huh. It was, you know, most, all, most of the top world offit skiers were there, you know. Yeah. So. And, and the technique that they were using on this river race was the, what we call now the marathon skate. That's right. Okay. <laughs> and that's how skating started. That, you know, we, we, uh, when I started skating, we were still waxing kick wax and, um, and skiing up, you know, regular style up the hill and, um, and carrying as much of the marathon skate up into graduals and as steep as possible. You, you know, you, you train for it and you go up steeper and steeper hills, but there was no V1 that That came a few years later. Right. So we were still waxing and still using our classic skis. And so after that race, the season ended. I think that was more of a spring event. Is that correct? Yeah, that was in March. Yeah. So after that race, I don't remember seeing you for quite a while after that. You went home basically and worked on skating technique. Well, I was, uh, I needed a, I changed and I was really excited by what I found in Sweden with skating. So I thought I would um, go race those guys um, and, and learn their game. Um, so I went on the world off it that year. Huh. And um, yeah. And, and so I had, you know, a whole year all to myself. No one else was even training for it or thinking about it. I don't think. Right. I had a whole year jump on everybody. So. And, and how did that 1981 winner go with racing world loppets against marathon specialists? Uh, pretty well. Uh, I won uh, one really prestigious race, the Engadine marathon. Uh, I was seventh in the Vasa, but I, I might've had a chance to do a lot better than that, but I had a horrible horrible start where I broke a pole and got shoved into this thing and, and left the stadium in thousands place and ended up catching everybody. But by the time I caught everybody, um, I was like, I just raced a relay and I was in a 90 K race. So I felt really lucky to be seventh. <laughs> so, sure. but um, yeah, it was a good year. I just learned, um, you know, how they skated and your tactics and, when 19 and then every 
Oh, sorry. No, no, you go, you first, please. I, I was going to say, everybody said, yeah, you can do that on the World Office. Good luck on the World Cup. So that's what I was up against. Right. When I came to the World Cup, I had to sort of show that you could do it in hills too. So, so one <laughs> winter ended. Did you end that winter with the plan of competing in the World Cup in 1982? Yeah. Well, yeah, that was my strategy. So the spring of 1981, you were thinking, okay, now I've got a summer and fall, and I'm going to show up in the World Cup and, and show what I learned. Super. The 1982 was the first winter when there was an official World Cup. Before that, the FIS would call them unofficial World Cups. In that year, there were a total of 10 World Cup races. And back then, the World Championships were included in and scored with the World Cup. The FIS shows you raced six races of those 10 World Cup races. Is that accurate? I think so. But again, I'm not going to promise my memory is that great. It could have been seven. I think it was six because I'm pretty sure I missed four. Uh, because I, I got the first one in the world championships and then I missed the next three because I got really, really sick. Okay. So I missed three, three worlds and then I missed the next 50 in Lottie, which meant I had to count a zero for 50 because you had to count a 50. So I had to put a zero in that category. So I, chips were really down when I left Lottie. Um, so that winter then you raced six of the World Cup races and of those six races that you raced in, you won four. You were third in one, which was the world championship race that you bronzed in. And then you were fourth in the other. So out of those six World Cup races, you won four, you were third once and fourth once, which is of course extremely impressive. And I didn't even get to count my fourth because I, got, I had to count zero on a 50. Uh -huh. Can we visit the, before we get to the World Cup, can we visit the the world championship race that you did race in the, I think it was the 30K, um, but I'm not sure. Yeah. In, in Oslo? Right. I believe that you said at one point that was the best race you'd ever skied? It very well could be. Um, it was certainly one of them. Um, uh, I came in there and everybody said, Everybody was still kind of in denial about skating, even though I had won two World Cups going into World Championships. Everybody was still saying, yeah, that was down in Central Europe. They're all flat down there. Wait till he gets to Oslo. We're going to show him a thing or two about skating when he gets here. I get there and everyone's pretty negative. Like, no, and I mean, I got booed and um, it wasn't that easy. Um, and I, I started horribly. Oh my God, I just, I, I didn't think I was going to do anything. And then I just really caught a second win and had, you know, the second half of that race, I came from in the teens in the placings in this in, up to the bronze medal. I just skied it right out of my mind. It was mostly downhill. And so I could really just free skate. I mean, you know, not marathon skating at all, just skate like a banshee all the way down through there. And um, yeah, that was probably, some of my finest racing uh, coming from teens to a bronze. <laughs> I love the fact that you said that or that you could say that you allowed yourself to say that because for example, you won the two world cup races previous to that bronze medal 
and then you end up getting third. And my understanding is you said, that's the best race I think I've ever skied. And it shows again that you were in, you had ownership. You weren't letting someone say, well, no, that's actually, you know, terrible compared to the last two races you've entered and so on. You were allowed to, you were allowed to define success for yourself, which is very empowering, I think, and important for a ski racer to be able to do. Well, thanks. Um, it's interesting that year, how it developed because after spending a whole year putting all my eggs into the skating basket on the world Loppet and then coming to the world cup and wondering whether it could still work in that hilly terrain, whereas world Loppets were mostly flat. Um, and then in the very first world cup, and then I barely made it there. Um, I, I, um, just barely scratched my way to Europe, uh, making our team that year. Uh, it was just, horrible politics where I, I won't go into it, but I made it over there by the hair of my chin, chin, chin. And in the first race, um, I was like 45th. Everybody just laughing at me. Yeah. Yeah. How do you like your skating now? You know? <laughs> so, um, and I, I, at that point I said, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. It was a good, I thought maybe I was crazy. Um, I, I'm going to go to the next race and if this happens again, I'm probably going to go home. And then I win the next race. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm not crazy. Oh, this is real. <laughs> so, um, so it was, you know, pretty sweet when, uh, it was hard because I was booed, but it was sweet that I could, you know, prove this was real. After that, everybody took it seriously. And, uh, so there was a race in 1982 that same season we're talking about in Falun where you participated in a 30k classic or obviously it was a 30k it didn't say classic at the time but um remember the conditions were very difficult and you were playing around with waxing solutions including no wax and you created some Harry's with some sandpaper does this all ring a bell oh yeah yeah okay. very much <laughs> and yeah. And uh, for those that aren't aware of what Harry's are, you took some basic, uh, a cork and some sandpaper and you, you roughened up the kick zone extremely such that it was kind of hairy and it created some, some grip, and, which wasn't very well known back then. And my understanding was Dan Seminole was really close to the start in line, getting ready to start, and you handed him a pair of skis and said, go with these. And he trusted you to do that, which shows a lot about his trust in your innovation and your, in your team spirit. And then he ended up second, which was amazing behind one Bill Coke who ended up winning that race in Falun. That's an amazing and historic day. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? Or did I just sum it up? You know, even, even the Russians and Norwegians have a hard time pulling off a feat like that one, two in a world cup in a Nordic country. And um, yeah, it's because of Harry's. Um, I first heard about the Harry's after I, I heard a rumor um, after the 76 Olympics that some unknown guy in East Germany won their national championships with sandpaper, roughing up his base with sandpaper. I could not let that go. It just, I just, I heard that and I, for the next however many years until 82, six years, I fiddled around with it 
and never used it once until that day. And the only reason why I used it is because I'd been barking slightly up the wrong tree all the time using regular sandpaper. And right before the race, Jim Galanis, is, uh, he was on Edspin, and his rep said, yeah, you've been using sandpaper. Why don't you try this? This is a different kind of sandpaper. It's, it was metal, a metal abrader. And I, I had like minutes to go for the start. Rub it on um, really quick. It doesn't take long. And, and first few strides, it was so obvious. Going from no wax working at all to perfect kick. I knew that in five strides. And I just told everybody who would listen on the team. And Danny was the only one that took me up on it. So, um, huh. <laughs> and then after the race, after the race it was so funny. We finished and we were mobbed. I mean, all during the race, I noticed like everybody knew something was up. All the coaches, they were like that. They had their heads down on the ground trying to look up at the <laughs> bottoms of my skis. And as soon as I finished, everyone was grabbing for my skis. I'm like, hang on. <laughs> but uh, anyway, Marty Hall spilled the beans anyway. So everybody found out about it. Um, but I had been fooling around with it long enough that I, I had the edge all the way through. Like, you know, I was fooling around with different grits and different ways of different lengths. And everyone was first starting and I had the head start there. So I, I had another win with it um, the next year on the World Cup. Hmm. Uh, I was even sick. It was a 30K. I was sick and I almost didn't race because I was feeling so bad, but it was a hairy day. So I said, I have to go. And I won the race by two minutes. Wow. Feeling bad. Even a year later after everyone had a whole year. So we kept, you know, we were always ahead. We were ahead on that. We were ahead on skating. We were ahead on like the Olympic medal came because we had really, really fast skis because we were ahead on um, Alpine wax. Um, you know, glide wax, tips, tips and tails. Not long before that, it was all, yeah. And um, in 76, it sounded like it paid off that gamble that you, you went early and went for the icier conditions. Well, that plus we were ahead on uh, short kickers and mm -hmm. long, and our, our um, assistant coach, Rob Kiesel, um, initiated the whole um, tips and tails glide waxing thing. He was the guru internationally. Everybody like wanted to pick Rob's brains and he ended up working for Swix. And um, so we had Rob and, and he's the one that said, hey, why are we waxing full length? Why don't we put this alpine wax on our tips and tails? And you know, we started doing that. So even though we were Americans, you would think, you know, why would Americans, you know, be on technology cutting edge? We just were, you know. So let's cut to the World Cup final. In 1982, the World Cup final was in Castle Roto, Italy. For, they, don't, they don't have World Cups there anymore, but for many people that, that name and, um, evokes strong emotion like it does with me because of what happened there. You needed to finish ahead of Thomas Vosberg on that particular day in order to win the overall World Cup. Um, it was, uh, you ended up doing that. You ended up winning in spectacular fashion, winning the race as well as the overall World Cup. And Vosberg ended up in fifth. 
and, and thus ended up second in the overall World Cup. That must have been an incredibly emotional day. It was for me uh, back in the States, following it as best I could. Can you tell us about that, please? It's definitely um, the most high-pressure sort of personal situation I've ever been in in my career where it was all on the line. You just had to do it that day, um, and you had to do a certain thing. And I wasn't actually feeling that great. I didn't have a good night's sleep, and I kind of broke, and I was a little worried. Um, but I didn't, you know, I had had enough experience where I raced with sore throats before, felt and had great races. I've raced with no sore throat and had horrible races. So you never know. You just got to go and figure anything can happen. And it, it sure did. I felt great during the race and won by 50 seconds. And uh, it was just when you have a race like that, um, it doesn't even hurt. <laughs> it's just like everything just comes into place and that that's when you know you're really on you know uh, when you're hurting you're not quite at your potential you know so hmm. do you have anything you'd like to add about the 1982 season well the 1982 season for me the coolest thing was the relay at the end you know about that no please tell me see you don't even know See, um, we won the relay. Everybody there. <laughs> we cleaned their clocks. No agents, Russians, we, didn't, we got them all. I do remember and that. And that's, for me, that was more exciting than, than, um, than the World Cup itself. It really was. I mean, working as a team like that, um, I get my races mixed up. I, and I'm not sure... If, there was one race, I'm pretty sure it was the World Cup final one. It was lightly snowing and, and we all had to work together. Like every time one of us would be on a leg, the three others would be breaking track and trying to keep the lead. Otherwise, if we didn't have that teamwork, we would have just been eaten alive and it would have been a huge you know, sprint to the finish and Lord knows what could happen. So because we had that teamwork, um, we worked together and we just barely stayed ahead of the all the way we dominated the whole way through kind of like um when i saw the uh, the guys win the world juniors relay like that yeah it's fantastic we had it, we had it like those guys yeah <laughs> super so, yeah okay in 1983 the world cup consisted again of 10 races in nine different venues you ended that season in third overall which of course is another historic result I wanted to ask you about doping because it, it seemed like it, I know um, the Russians were continually present over the years, such as winning the gold in 76. But if you look at 1983 and after, um, for example, 1982 and 1983, every single top three finish in both men's and women's was either Norwegian, Swedish, Finnish, American, or East Bloc. And that's kind of where the emergence of the East Bloc countries came. We know looking back about the history, you know, what they were doing. We've seen uh, records in many cases and so on. But did you ever suspect them at the time of doping? I guess so. You were probably pretty aware of it, judging by your comments. It was pretty, it was pretty common knowledge. Um, everybody knew. Couldn't prove it. Um, didn't have the right testing protocols, whatever. But everybody knew. 
Um, and it, it was that way all the way through. And it's, you know, now it's more sophisticated and, but, and, but we also have better cops too. So, you know, <laughs> back then we didn't really have good cops and the cheaters kind of had their way. <laughs> it, it sounds like competing against dopers in some respects, at least in some, on some days motivated you? Oh, very much. That was one of my biggest motivators because I totally believe in human potential and that we're nowhere near it. And so if doping gives you X percent improvement, the brain will give you twice X. Mm. If, you, if you tap in, if you believe that it's there. Like, I don't, it's just there, whether you believe in it or not. And so if you go for it, you can totally, even today, I know it's harder today with doping, but you can still win clean. I know you can. And it's more, it's, it's sweeter that way, actually. Uh, it's even more rewarding uh, when, you, when you beat cheaters, I think. So. Super. And I'd rather, I'd rather be um, a, a doping sandwich than, than, <laughs> win, than, than win as a doper. You know? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, do you want, is there anything you want to say about 1984? There's not, I don't remember much except for you raced in Sarajevo. Uh, can you, would you like to talk, mention anything about 1984? Yeah. Well, um, another theme on disappointments. Um, 84 is again going to be my, my year to, um, you know, to get a gold and um, 83 leading into 84 gave me every reason to believe it was possible. 83 was my very best year, far, far better than 82 when I won the World Cup. I had a much better year athletically in 83. And I actually led the World Cup until the last race and lost it in the very, very last race. So after 83, even though I got third instead of winning, um, I was very encouraged. I was at my peak of my life and I thought 84 is going to be my year. And that started great. And a few weeks before the Olympics, we raced in Davos at uh, altitude on a very, very cold day. And I totally mismanaged that race and burned my lungs really bad. And that was it. Once you do that as an asthmatic, um, and once you do that to your, to your lungs, it takes a long, long, way more than a few weeks to to bring it back. And so I knew I was cooked, but I still wanted to, um, you know, see what I could do. And I did have one of my best fifties ever, which was the last race. So I had the most time to recover for that last 50. Hmm. I was in the top 20, I think. Um, I never do well in 50. So. Um. Bill, you brought up the 1983 world cup final. I have a question for, I remember, I remember that distinctly, but I have a question. When did you start, being involved in trail design? Um, probably about age five. <laughs> well, my understanding is you designed the courses in Lab City. Yeah, right. Before or after the World Cup final? Uh, it was about three or four years before, three or two, two years maybe before. Exactly. Yeah. That was my understanding. So yeah. um, this isn't, uh, this doesn't sound good, but you end up losing the 83 World Cup. <laughs> you were going into yeah. that race in the yeah. lead, and then you lost the overall World Cup on a course that didn't necessarily suit you, but you designed. 
I designed it. Um, it, it would never suit me because of the FIS uh, course regulations are in my mind quite ridiculous, but, um, but it, I, it was the best I could do within those guidelines for a course. And yeah, I lost on my own course. And, um, and Timmy Caldwell deserves some of the blame. My own teammate uh, beat me the, the, um, the race before in Anchorage and bumped me down to, I was third, he was second. And right. uh, uh, Swan, Gunda Swan won. Yeah. And so, so then I had a pretty tall order after that and I just couldn't come up with the goods in Labrador. <laughs> but well, see, that doesn't really matter. What really matters about that year is I know in my heart, I don't care what the results say, I know I was the closest to my potential in that year. Exactly. And that feels pretty, that feels pretty good. Exactly. So. Well, if I know this isn't much of a consolation prize, <laughs> but I can tell you that I think that those courses in Newfoundland and Labrador were, they're probably the most fun downhills I've ever skied. There are other downhills out there that the, the one section of the downhill is a lot of fun. But in terms of a top to bottom downhill, it's an, extended, it's an extended downhill with a whole bunch of turns with bumps on it and it's a whole lot of variety. If you're a really good downhill skier, you can make a ton of time on, those, on that course and on those downhills. And um, I, I, I've skied there a number of times in the mid and, and late 80s. And I remember thinking how much fun skiing is and how much I fell in love again with skiing, skiing in those downhills, and how when I, when I learned that you had designed those trails, um, how impressed I was that that it was these trails were designed by someone who loves skiing, and thus the downhills are so darn fun to ski on. I would in my training, I would uh, do like the so-called Chinese downhills with a couple of friends. We do distance workouts, and then we would race the downhills, you know, shoulder to shoulder. It was so much fun. So I know it's not much of a consolation prize but thank you for designing the most fun downhills I've ever skied on. Well, I tried to design the courses so that it would maximize the downhill the most time. So you had notice the downhills weren't really, really high speed. They were kind of medium to low speed, but lots and lots of technicality. So it took your, your percentage of overall race time um, utilizing technical skills was a greater percentage of the, of the overall race time. Nowadays, it's the race is an uphill grind. There's very little nuanced skill challenge because there's no terrain anymore. It's all bulldozed. And then, you know, I tried, even though I was using a bulldozer and everything to, to make it more natural, but um, unless you really try to do that, like most operators just go and it's a, it's a, it's an interstate highway instead of a trail. So that's what you get. <laughs> yeah. but the, the courses you designed, you had to be aware of unwaiting and waiting and when you did it. And you had to be aware of when you were, if you could skate down the bottom, the backside of a hill of, 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 of a bump, if you could skate off the backside of a bump as compared to into the bump, of course, you would make time on everybody. And, and so, yeah, downhills weren't as important. It had become less important in many respects. But that downhill that you did, those, that series of downhills that you designed, you could make a heck of a lot of time on if you 
knew how to generate speed and you were good in the downhills. So I really appreciate so, that. So here's a challenge to the FIS. Put the skiing skills back into skiing. Figure out how to do it. There is a way. <laughs> and, you know, I'm all for that. It would make it more fun as well as it would minimize the advantage that people gain from doping. It would be even better television too. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> and and all the all the racers have these huge smiles on their faces. <laughs> you know, a skier should have to know how to ski to win the gold medal. So. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to say about um, 1983 or four? I think we've pretty much covered it. Thanks. <laughs> you retired after 1984 for a while. Yes. And uh, as I, I thought for good. <laughs> right. Um, as I mentioned in, in um, 1985 and six, I was at world juniors. 1985, I was 17 and I, I actually finished 10th in the senior nationals and senior world team trials. And I was thinking, Where's Bill Koch? I would have loved to have been able to ski. Not that I would have been competitive with you, but I just loved, would have loved to have been able to ski in the same race as my idol and, and to have kind of gotten to know you a bit as, a, as an equal as compared to some kid who was looking up at you. You know, I just would have loved that opportunity. Um, but that's what I was thinking at the time as well as, woohoo, I, I did really well, you know. Um, but I just missed you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. That was a close call, I think. <laughs> yeah. So what, what, what happened or what did you do between 84 and 92? I windsurfed and I climbed mountains. Um, pretty much that. <laughs> and then um, I coached. Uh, I, I went to three world juniors uh, with the ski team. That was really cool. Um, and then I decided I wanted to have another go. And I actually ended up competing against the, the team members that I coached <laughs> to make the team. <laughs> and barely scratched onto the back of the 92 team. Didn't really belong there, but made it. Um, I only had about a, 10 months of training. Um, and... Um, just wanted to get experience, um, see where I was at, because 94 was my focus. Uh, and then after 92, uh, had fantastic years, um, best training of my life. I thought I could do it again. I really thought I was capable of pulling it off in 94. <laughs> Got sick right before the tryouts and that was it. So, you know, however many Olympics I was eligible for, go figure, you know. Now, it's mostly disappointments, and you got to be in it for the right reasons. <laughs> so. Sure. I was in 92 myself. Um, at the time I was doing biathlon, I switched. Um, and I don't think I ever even laid eyes on you, even though, like I said, you've been an idol of mine my whole life. I was kind of focused on what I was doing, and but I do regret, again, not taking advantage of that. But I do know, I didn't go to opening ceremonies, but I do know you are the U.S. flag bearer in opening ceremonies. How was the 1992 experience for you overall? Uh, that was one of the most amazing experiences of my entire career because it meant so much to me that it, it was a, um, what do you call it, an elected position. Like my, 
my teammates um, chose me. Um, and, and that to me meant everything. I, it was the first time I had actually ever been to an opening ceremony because um, the 30K was always the next day and, and they were hours apart and it was, you know, late Sunday night, you, you don't want to be up doing that. You don't want to be in bed for the 30. So I never had been to an opening ceremony and um, to experience it in that capacity voted by my teammates, I, that was the ultimate. <laughs> And it was also one of the one of the weirdest experiences of my life too, um, because they told me, under no circumstances will you dip that flag. Oh yeah, and and I was like, huh? It's the tradition to dip the flag for the president of the host country, in this case, Mitterrand. I. I was like, I couldn't, I, I said, I can't promise you that. I, I, I said, I will do what everyone else does. I will not be the only one to hold old glory high if everyone else dips. I'm just not going to do it. And I said, I, I don't need this. Like, get someone else to dip the flag for you, not me. Well, people went nuts. I mean, it became a whole patriotic thing in the national media. So I ended up in this press conference the night before the 30. <laughs> Just what I want to be doing before a race. Like in this theater, I'm up on this stage and there's like a hundred or more American journalists wanting my ass. <laughs> for being unpatriotic. This damn hippie from because, Southern Vermont and Oregon. Because, <laughs> you know, in every previous Olympics, old glory has never gone down. Yeah. And so they were just grilling me and I was like trying to explain and, I, and it was just getting hotter and hotter and I was getting nowhere. And finally, I just got fed up and I just said, look, put yourself in my shoes. You're carrying the flag. You're going in front of the president of France. Everyone else is dipping their flag, but no, you're an American. You can't do that. Who in the hell do we think we are sometimes? You know, I mean, show some respect. And so um, right before we went in, we're waiting to go in and I'm in the lead. I got my flag and, and I've got long hair. And that drives me crazy. The, the guys that told me not to dip the flag, they're going nuts over my long hair and I got this hat on and they're trying to tuck my curls up <laughs> into my hat. And I'm going, get off me. And then they said, we're just about to walk in. They said, do not dip that flag. I turned around and I said, you take the flag. And they were like, no, 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 go ahead. They didn't want to. Like, I was ready to have it out with them. They really, get off my back. And it turns out it was nothing. It was all, I don't even know what it was. Nobody dipped their flag. It was all a bunch of hooey. And so I didn't because no one else did. So it was so strange. I, 
puzzle over it to this day. <laughs> I remember, uh, like I said, I didn't go to the opening ceremonies, but I remember reading the hubbub about all that stuff. There was a, a furor. So my wife actually carried the flag for Germany in the closing ceremonies. So there's a lot of flag bearing going around around here. <laughs> well, you probably know Lyle Nelson because he did it too. So yeah, being a bias week. Yeah. So can we talk about maybe if we haven't talked about it already, a favorite race experience that was especially especially meaningful for you? Well, it's not my own. Oh, cool. It's my, it's my son, Will. Last winter, um, hmm. I went, I followed him to Europe and to Switzerland. First time I've been to Europe since I raced, I'm pretty sure. And um, uh, it was the Youth Olympics every four years. They have for 18 years and under uh, full uh, Olympics, like real medals. Um, they built an Olympic village for the event that turned into a college after amazing modern structure to encourage um, the athletes to mingle. Um, it wasn't all about winning. It was about sportsmanship. So there's a lot of focus on that. Anyway, he uh, got a bronze medal on the same venue that I won my first woke up on. So I read that, but I didn't realize that that the venue they used for that was an established World Cup venue ever in history. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, and so I was on familiar ground. He's racing on the course, same course that I uh, won my World Cup on. And people rec recognized me around town. So, um, you know, I, uh, there's this uh, guy that um, I raced with. Uh, we were really good friends from West Germany, George Zipfel. And actually, he won World Juniors yeah, I know um, as a junior. And we were really great friends uh, throughout our careers. And um, he was on the jury. And as soon as he realized that I was there, because I thought I was going to be just, it was, but security was so tight. It was like the real Olympics. If you didn't have the right credentials, you were going nowhere. And I was resigned to being behind the fence. Well, George grabbed me by the scruff of my neck and said, you're coming with me. And I was with him for the whole rest of the time. He took me all around with him, went and fed me in the athlete's place. And I got out on the course with an armband and he introduced me to the German coach. And I went from behind the fence to on the course at the crux of the, of the hardest climb with the German coach. And he told the coach, give Bill splits for Will too. So, um, and, and so his athlete and Will um, and the, and were second and third in the race. And so it was just so fun to be at the crux of the race, being able to scream to my own son on trailside, you're winning. He was winning on the first of three laps. Um, and he ended up third and I was able to, on the last lap, I was able to sprint down. I probably never sprinted this fast in any recent time. Um, probably five minutes. I was like, I thought I was going to pass out and I just barely caught him like 400 meters to the finish and told him his last split. And he said, that really made the difference. He said, I never skied like that in my life. And he got the bronze medal by three seconds. So that to me, that, I mean, I can't even describe every time I raced, even my silver medal, whatever world cup, 
I would immediately like be really happy, right? And joyful. But as soon as I could get down under the pillow, think what are the learnings? How can I be better? How can I be? It wasn't like this huge celebration. Whereas for Will, I just went berserk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, joy just went right where it needed to go. <laughs> that was the coolest. <laughs> That's really beautiful. And I love the fact that your favorite race experience is your son winning a bronze at the Youth Olympics. That's beautiful. It says a lot about you and the human experience being parents. And I love it. Thank you. Um, you're clearly a free thinker and a very innovative person. Was your training much different from other Nordic ski racers at the time? I was really, um, well, <clears throat> in the beginning, I was mostly following protocol, like in the very beginning, um, you know, just doing what people said was right and that's how I burned my lungs in the beginning that's how I became an asthmatic because I was you know doing screwed up things because the coach said so um only like after about 1980 I was really training completely innovatively on my own doing my own thing I was really into resistance training um that was really my big advantage I had a friend who was a um, innovator designer out in Oregon where I lived and he built me this um, resistance cart out of bicycle parts with a vice grip for resistance uh, and I could put weight on it so I could train under resistance the right resistance you know it has to be just the right amount um, so as I was going up and down through the train I could adjust the vice grip really quick and and keep a constant even on the downhills I wouldn't be wasting time in a tuck I could keep working and I had like you know five points of contact with bungee cords on my wrists and and uh, ankles so that I could you know get that drive under resistance too and um and so that was kind of and then on a bike I I didn't run much because my body wasn't liking that that much and I really loved biking so I had a huge 60 inch ring on my on my chain ring so that I would never have to sit down so that I would always be using arms and legs together like in skiing and keep the heart rate up to, you know, the right levels, which is really hard to do when you're sitting in the saddle. Um, and you could keep it cranking on the downhills too. I, I, I was, you know, 45 miles an hour before I was spun out on that 60 inch. So those kind of things, uh, resistance, biking, what else? Um, oh, altitude. Um, I would rent RVs and drive up to 6,000 and have my own little training camps up there in the mountains. So I would be sleeping at altitude and getting red blood cells that way. Um, those are, oh, I was sand skiing then too, um, but in, in horrible sand <laughs> in Oregon, in the Oregon dunes, they had the, uh, really great terrain right on the ocean. So it's really fun. You can ski up and down the dunes. So you get really good vertical work and it's just fast enough to glide back down the dunes. So it's kind of fun. And then you could go down to the water and get wet. And um, so that worked out well too. When did you move to Oregon? I moved um, 81. Oh, I didn't realize that. Cool. Yeah. Huh. that's remarkable. I wanted to be able to ski year round. 
So that was my my plan to to be able to ski around on Mount Hood. Huh. In New England and New York, there used to be a youth ski league named Torger. Torger. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Torger <laughs> yeah. Uh, he was a Norwegian immigrant who dominated U.S. ski jumping scene early in the 40s before losing his life in World War II. After your successes, they changed the name to the Bill Coke Youth Ski League. I, I grew up participating in that league. How did you feel about the name change? They asked me after I won the medal, and I was pretty reluctant. I, I really saw it as a pretty great responsibility and I was a little worried that um, the way it was at the time it was pretty focused on championship skiing and I just thought that's not really gonna be good for kids who don't want to race and I just wanted everyone to ski so uh, we kind of uh, once we settled on having festivals instead of championships and having you know all comers instead of racers uh, i got more comfortable and we went ahead and that really worked great and it's you know at the time i was too young to really appreciate what was going on but uh, as i get older i just like it's one of the greatest honors of my life you know this is a sport that has touched my heart i believe in it so deeply and to think that something i did could get this many people out skiing that might not have skied that i just i can't tell you how good that feels <laughs> it's such an honor so and it's like coming around it's like now it's second and third generation you know and it's like people used to come up to me and say oh wow you won the silver medal now they're coming up and go you know you changed my life because skiing is the greatest thing. And now I can ski my whole life and I might not have done it, you know, so it just feels great. <laughs> Super. I have to ask you a question that um, I wasn't planning on asking you. Did you ever race or do you remember the Washington's birthday race or the Paul Revere cup? Washington's birthday. I don't know about Paul Revere, but. Paul Revere is in Fort Devon, yeah, Massachusetts. birthday. And Washington's birthday was in southern Vermont, usually in the Brattleboro area. In Putney, yeah. Putney yeah. and Brattleboro area. Did, yeah. did you ever uh, jump in that or were you gone? No, no, I was in that many times. What, yeah. What? So I thought so. So I did race the same race as you because I did that in oh, yeah? years. Huh, cool. I started doing that what when I was four years you? old. And I did it every year from four years old to maybe when I was nine or so. And then I told my parents I was going to run away if they made me keep doing ski races. And they said, well, fine, you don't have to, you don't have to race. You're going you're gonna to ski with us as a family, but you're not going to race. And then a couple of years later, I joined the Bill Coke Youth Ski League. But that was the, those are the two big races that I did, the two main races I did every year, Paul Revere Cup and the Washington's Birthday Race. And I was a little tyke. I remember my first Paul Revere Cup, which was only a 10K, the Washington's Birthday Race was about 15. Uh, it was three hours and 50 minutes as a four-year-old. <laughs> but as it turns out, I think I'm quite confident then that we did race uh, a ski race together, which is gratifying to me. a long it? way for a four-year-old. <laughs> yeah, it is. How did you cool. get from... <laughs> <laughs> well, the way it happened, if you want to know, at least when I was four or five, I was 
quote unquote racing and all, you know, crying alone most of the time, you know, alone and uh, ended up catching one of my brothers. And I was so lonely and I wasn't the deal maker. He was the deal maker. He said, okay, as long as you let me win, I will ski with you the rest of the time. And later on <laughs> in life, I was thinking, wait a minute, I was passing him. What, was, what kind of a deal was that? But anyway, I was pretty desperate for something. <laughs> okay. That's pretty remarkable, though, that you went from not liking it and kind of rebelling against your parents to being totally passionate about it later in life. I think it had to do with, and that's why I'm touching on this a little bit with you, but I think it had to do with ownership. I didn't, I enjoyed the family skis. We'd, we'd ski from our house through backyards and cornfields and we'd just go wherever with our skis. We did a lot of that and I was fine with it, but the big races, I didn't feel like I had a choice in the matter and I was the youngest in the family, so I just got thrown in and I don't know. I just, I think I needed to show to myself that it, it was my decision and it was mine. And as soon as it became mm -hmm. mine, I've been a very passionate skier ever since. But I think that's a critical aspect of maybe raising a child as a parent. Uh, you know, we have a daughter who's very passionate about Nordic skiing. And I've been, my wife and I have taken every step possible to make sure that she understands that it's hers on her terms and every way. And I think that's done a lot of good. I imagine you've had a similar experience. Absolutely. It's got to be on your own terms to have the best chance of success. You got to do it for yourself. And I, parents have to just let their kids do that. Yeah, I learned that and I was able to provide that for my daughter. And she's heard a million times. My, my wife is an Olympic gold medalist and biathlon was a very good cross country skier. And so my daughter has heard a number of times by well-meaning people, oh, you better be good. You know, because of yeah. jeans, I'm sure I'm sure Will's heard that more than a few times. Oh, just imagine the pressure on poor Will. You exactly. Know. And, it, and it takes the fun out of it. Unless you go take extra steps to insulate from that kind of stuff and to play, please, you know, please just, just let him have some fun, you know. And and so we've, we've, we've made every effort as well, but I'm sure you know exactly what we're talking about. So, yeah, we're very sensitive about that, as I'm sure you are. That's great. So I have a few more questions. One is asthma. I'm sure there are a lot of asthmatic skiers out there. I guess there are two types of asthmatic skiers. I shouldn't say it this way, but you know, there's, there's those asthmatics that take a whole ton of sambuterol um, <laughs> to, to prevent getting asthma. And there are perhaps asthmatic skiers who actually have asthma and fight with it their whole lives. And, and it's a serious problem. And you fall into that category. Can you maybe comment on the difficulty of being an elite ski racer? as an asthmatic? Okay, well, after being told that I wasn't training hard enough unless I puked on my intervals um, and burning my lungs and starting my asthma story, um, I got, I went, I, it wasn't common then at all. Uh, Exercise-induced asthma was pretty brand new. I went down to Boston to, to this pretty sophisticated cutting edge lab that knew about this and, and they tested me on a treadmill and um, they couldn't max me out. And they said, you're fine. I said, come on, I'm a ski racer. This is um, arms and legs. You, I can't, I mean, I can't max out running. It's impossible. 
Um, and they had it the steepest, everything. And so I said, I, and I brought an extra genie with me. And I said, let's stick this in the door, put that thing up next to the door and let's see what happens. Boom. Asthmatic, <laughs> you know? Okay. So then I experimented with doctors and medications for the next four years or so. Um, and then when after 1980, when everything was up for grabs and I was just that, you know, I want to try to do this without medication. Um, and so I won my World Cup without medication. And, and that, you know, was for me, that was one of the biggest victories of my life to do that. Um, and um, that's all there is, I guess. Um, I did, um, I did keep using medication for relays though because i didn't want to take any yeah. chances on on having a less than good performance for those guys so, so here's a cross <laughs> elite cross-country skier anecdote that i'm sure you'd identify with but in 1989 i had a, a really severe allergic reaction to a medicine that i was put on it was an antibiotic and they threw me in the ambulance and i went to the hospital and i spent two weeks in an intensive care unit in the hospital because i was I was anaphylactic and everything. And one of the symptoms I had was my, my, my lungs were filling up with fluid and I had very reduced lung capacity. And they had a lung specialist come in and put me on, I think it was called a spirometer. It measures your lung capacity. And I blew into the thing and they said, no, you're fine. You're above average. I mean, you're totally fine. Yeah. I don't understand. I'm an elite cross country ski racer. I've got huge lungs. And they're like, no, you're fine. And then over the course of the next five days, I kept arguing with them because I felt like I was drowning and they kept telling me my lungs were totally fine. And then finally they put me on some medicine to clean my lungs up. And then I had the highest uh, number that I'd ever seen by far, by, by a third. And I said, okay, now next time you get a cross country skier in here, you'll know what to expect. <laughs> it's the same with heart rate. If, you know, people who take my heart rate that don't know about cross country skiing go, whoa, this is the problem. I go, really, it's normal. <laughs> you, you're talking about your resting heart rate? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, enlighten us. What are you talking about for numbers out of curiosity? The lowest I ever got scared me, actually, because my heart barely kept going. I had a 27 wow. with a heart rate monitor. That was with a heart rate monitor on, so it was a real number. Uh, I was regularly in the low 30s, um, typically at night. Now it's up about 10 beats. Uh, mm -hmm. Wow. From then. I, the lowest I ever heard but was a 32. It was kind of scary sometimes because especially I noticed after I came down from altitude, sometimes I would have my heart would do funny things and uh, stop for a little bit and then get going again. <laughs> that's remarkable. Huh. But, you know, that's just from training. You know, it's just a training effect. If you, if you uh, challenge it, it will adapt. For sure. <laughs> Here's a question for you that I'm, I'm really interested in. I remember you saying that you are not the fittest or the strongest skier out there. However, you won the overall World Cup in 1982 and you were third in 1983. Would you please describe your strengths and weaknesses as an athlete? And what would you give credit to for your many successes? Well, the U.S. skiing team did not do me any favors by doing the, the testing. 
because it just told me I was pretty average and that lots of skiers had much more capacity than I did physically. Um, that um, I think actually that might have been okay for me. It probably helped me a little bit because it made me realize that I wasn't going to do it that way. I had to think of other ways to do it. But I think a lot, you know, I, I, I'm not sure that's really a good thing all the time to just tell somebody, you know, you're just average. Um, but um, um, where was I going? I, what was the question? Strengths <laughs> and weaknesses as an athlete and then oh, yeah. to what you attribute your right. success. Right, right. Well, um, to have a passion for something is, is the greatest strength, I think. Uh, if you, you'll just do anything and you'll devote your life to something if you, if you truly have the passion. And that's what it takes. Like, I'm sure if you're really, really talented and you've got huge lung capacity and you're a really, really skilled skier, you can kind of truly your way to a gold medal. But for most of us, it takes, you know, figuring it out. And so you have, you know, passion is the driver for me, you know, and, and belief, you have to believe that it's possible. Otherwise it's very unlikely that it will ever happen if you don't totally believe that you can do something. Super. Thank you. Build and, um, Oh, one more thing. Yeah, I was just going to say, thinking out of the box is another one. Just if you copy other people, you're going to follow them through the finish line almost for sure. Because by the time you figured out what they're doing, they're going to have figured out the next step and they're going to be, you know, so you have to think about, okay, what will it take to win a race 10 years from now, right? What will it take? Like, think ahead, because it's going to happen. Um, someone's going to, you know, be much faster in 10 years than you are today. And they're not going to have any more body or mind than you have right now. So figure it out, right? They're going to have to. It might take them 10 years, but you could figure it out right now and do it now. So always think that the conventional wisdom is only that. It's just your base. It's just the foundation that you, you learn what, everyone's doing you get all the facts and then you make up your own thing from there that's how you stay ahead of the curve otherwise every time you think of something new and you catch people with their pants down and win the race they're going to copy you and if you're not still thinking then you're all going to be even again right you have to keep doing it so that's a great point um and inspiring one, one example that I think is, you know, I was talking with Andy Newell recently, and he was talking about how because the U.S. ski team had a lower budget than everyone else, they didn't have a Nordic background, Nordic-specific strength coach. Instead, they took the strength coach for the U.S. ski team that was working with the alpine skiers, had kind of a, you know, more of a football background, et cetera. And that strength coach then didn't look at things from the traditional Nordic perspective, but rather they made the Nordic skiers were all doing strength exercises that the alpine skiers and even football players were doing. And lo and behold, the American sprinters leapt to the forefront in sprinting because of they were all of a sudden, they were doing things not only differently, but actually ahead of their time in terms of strength work, which is, which is a, an example of what you're talking about, I think, instead of following. 
which is, has yeah. predictable results. Did you have a comment? No. Oh, okay. I was afraid you'd take it and the connection wasn't good. <laughs> okay, Bill. I remember one thing that um, I never, you always exuded joy while skiing. Not, not only racing, but messing around, playing on skis. You made a video with Rosignol and Ensa that's been posted on um, Vimeo and other, other providers that is, it's done its, it's made the rounds and is really thrilling to watch and captivating. Um, you're doing tricks in the woods on a spring day. You're playing around on skis and you're obviously incredibly skilled on skis, especially consider the, the, the snow you were skiing on wasn't hardly groomed at all. And the equipment you were skiing on is nothing that someone in this day and age would ski on, but you were doing some really impressive things on skis. When someone watches that, like myself, when I watch that, I'm, I'm saying this is someone who's among the best in the world and who absolutely loves this activity. Do you still ski? And under what circumstances? What is skiing for you now? I am just as addicted as I ever was, maybe even more. Um, I ski every single day. Um, I'm so fortunate we're in the snow zone here. We have lots of snow. If there's gonna be snow anywhere in the east, it's gonna be right here. I can go right out my door into the wilderness. Um, most of my skiing these days is backcountry, but I do a fair amount of track skiing here at Wild Wings too. Um, so I've got just everything at my fingertips and I live for it every single day, even when there's no snow. Every time I hike, every time I go out anywhere, I've always got my poles. I, you know, they're part of my body. And um, if I'm not skiing, I, I'm still in my head, I'm still skiing. <laughs> That love for skiing and passion, is that the passion you were talking about when you were talking about how important passion is? Or is it a passion to win? It's a passion <laughs> to skiing, correct? <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Skiing, like racing, is here today, gone tomorrow. Flash in the pan by the time you're mid-30s, you're not even halfway through your life. Where skiing takes you all the way. Like, even if I can't walk, I think I can still ski. So... Yeah, no, I, this is, this is a lifetime thing. And, um, the, the racing is just the, the, the first phase. <laughs> Super. Okay, Bill, you and your U.S. ski team teammates enjoyed quite a lot of success back in the early eighties. At that point, after that, we had a pretty long dearth of top results, despite all of our best efforts. It must be really gratifying for you to see the U.S. return to some top results, both in the junior and senior levels. Can you comment on that, please? It is so exciting right now. Um, American skiing is just coming on when it's starting with, well, I mean, really uh, with Keegan, but even before Keegan, um, uh, who, who got the fourth in the world uh, champ? Chris Freeman. Fr Chris Freeman, right? Um, no one knows about him, but he was knocking on the doors and then came Keegan. She was totally for real, but can't, couldn't put it together. Like she, she was the gold medalist in my mind, you know, but couldn't quite do it. So it was so sweet when she did it with Jesse. Um, so deserved. And I, I just, 
I, I can't tell you. Uh, I was so emotional. I just, when I first heard that, I went nuts. I burst outside. I, the first thing I could think of was to put my skis on. I got my skis on. I started sprinting all over the property, yelling and screaming and crying and laughing <laughs> and sprinting up hills. And it was just such a release. Uh, so amazing. Absolutely. And now, and now you see the, the junior boys coming on. Just dominating these relays, winning the individual, the first time ever. No one's ever won the world. You know, it's going to be exciting. And twice, two years in a row. The last one yeah. was, the, the first one I thought was the most exciting race I probably ever watched when Gus came back and, and then joined the large group and then sprinted them. But last year's was so amazing because they were the top rated team. And Luke Yeager shows up at the start and blows everyone away in the start. And <laughs> then they, they lead the whole thing all the way through, like favorites. And they were dominant. It was so incredible for, for someone of my generation, especially to see where, you know, I had some pretty good results and we had some pretty good results, but we were never going to, we were never top three in a relay and we're never close. It's really remarkable to see first and second men and women in the relay and men double, double champions. It's really remarkable. Yeah, I didn't even mention the women. I mean, they're on their way too. It's just happening across the board. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, I'm so excited for now, but I'm also really excited to see what happens in five to 10 years because who knows? This is so exciting. Well, see, the thing is, like, you know, you, you know, people always ask me, how come Americans can't do well? Well, it's because we don't have the tradition. In Norway, it's a national sport. If you put all of our four major professional sports together in one bag, it would still not be as big as cross-country skiing is in Norway. And so we don't have that tradition. We don't have gold medalists living in our towns and, and training with the kids on a regular basis and showing them the ropes like I had with Bob Gray, right? right. But that was an anomaly. Now we have that tradition. Now we have, you know, skiing has been established here and it's starting to pay off because now we're in the like third generation of experience. Whereas you know, like Bobby Gray was first or second generation, you know, so. That's the thing I keep coming back to is the Norwegians, Swedes, sometimes Germans, they've, they've got these club systems where you've got, let's say kids looking up at world junior champions and top world juniors and those people are looking up to Olympic and world champions and they're neighbors, you know, they, they know them and they know where they came from. They know what they eat. They know their parents. They know, and oftentimes they had the same coaches even, and there's a confidence in the system and in, in saying, well, if they can do it, I know I can do it because heck we're the same, you know? Um, and we're, yeah. we're, we're getting that now, which is really we exciting. We are. And see, that's where I got lucky because I did have the generation in front of me to, help me along otherwise i don't think so i don't think it would have happened so well thank you for providing that for providing that for others that perhaps weren't as successful as you but you inspired the heck out of me and us also let me ask you another question i've got a few more for you you have a son will who we've talked about a little bit who's obviously very talented so i ask this question with the knowledge that your thoughts are often with him what would you know, what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were 18? Uh, 
you know, I'm not going to think of the perfect answer, but all I can think of is um, when you're training, um, stay out of the pain. Um, I don't think pain helps. I think you can find ways to train really, really, really hard uh, and, and, and well without pain. With, because pain, I think that's a message that you're doing something wrong. And a lot of people think, oh, that means I'm doing something right. It means I'm expanding and maybe a little bit, you know, to push it. But so, I think so many people go so deep into it. And I think that tends to shut the body down. The body wants to protect itself. It has a built-in unconscious mechanism. If you abuse it, it's gonna try to protect itself. And you don't want that because if you're trying to perform, you got to be all out. You got to be loose. Like everything's got to be flowing. You can't have any restrictions. You can't have your body saying, eh, last time you did this to me, it hurt, you know? So I think, you know, and then this, and then, cause I, I learned the hard way. I, I learned that late. And so I overdid it and now I'm wearing it in a lot of ways as an older athlete. Um, I have used my body and now I don't have as much to work with. Whereas if I had known that, um, I would be in better shape now and I probably would have had better results in my races. Hmm. So heed the pain. <laughs> it's your messenger. <laughs> and, but and don't let it slow you down either. You can go really, really fast without pain. My best exactly. races, my fastest, best performances were pretty painless i won't say no pain but i can tell you about pain you know and you don't do well when you're in that kind of pain <laughs> well andy newell's from your neck of the woods um and i asked him maybe the same question i can't remember what 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 context he answered it in when we made this comment in but he said how important it is for young skiers to learn how to ski fast but relaxed and yeah. basically what, what you're saying, pain-free, I think. And so he has a workout where he does a whole lot of sp speed repeats, but he makes sure that those aren't max repeats or like 80% repeats such that it's relaxed, easy speed. And so you learn how to ski relaxed and easy and super fast as compared to that kind of jaw clenching fast, which I think is what you're talking about. Right. And that goes without saying, you have to find your efficiency. You have to be so experienced and skiing has to be so natural to you that it just, you're not even thinking. You just automatically are skiing efficiently. Um, just that's the way you are put together. I mean, that has to be automatic. If you're not skiing efficiently, you probably can't, you know, do, do all that well. I mean, or you will be limited. You have to like be loose and, and natural for sure uh, and then I wanted to say too I I, I kind of maybe went a little too far on the pain thing because racing's different now where with the sprints and in relays uh, and there are certain times when you have to dip in you just have to um, and the thing is I I think there's only so much of it like if you keep dipping and dipping and dipping it's not always going to be there to the max 
like you should only dip when it really matters. Like you're fourth leg in a relay, right? Or, uh, you know, World Cup final or our sprint now, they have sprints. And so I don't know if you can race sprints without pain. I, we had a few uh, experimental ones and boy, every one of those hurts so bad. <laughs> you know, so I don't know if that's certainly it's true for, for a distance individual race um, and for training. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. That's something that I think for me and for others to explore is trying to ski fast, relaxed without pain, you know, kind of almost the euphoria of skiing fast as compared to the, the negative part, the pain, the self uh, infliction. The euphoria is what being in, you focus on, huh? Yeah, being in the flow, being in the zone. You you know it when you're there, you know? Yeah, um, super. So, Bill, what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? <laughs> I actually think there's a long laundry list of things. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of things I know that I won't say, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, mean, I could probably think up to something kind of boring, but the really interesting stuff I probably, probably wouldn't tell you. <laughs> You got one for me or should I move on? No, I don't have anything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I respect that. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Right. Uh, I said it before. Um, you're never there. There's always more. You're never re you'll never reach your potential. Uh, every time you think you do well, take a second look. You, you could have you gone probably 15 to 30 seconds faster that day, let alone what you're going to do about it so that you can go better next time and do that right after the race when it's fresh, figure it all out, just figure you're never going to arrive. And if you think you have, that's when you're going to stop improving. <laughs> so. That's a very inspiring perspective. Thank you. Well, despite only having had seen you a handful of times in person and also having had only spoken with you a few times, you are a very, very important person to me in my life. Um, I thank you for your accomplishments that have inspired me so much for the time and talent that you have given the American skiing public back in the day. And, and I, I hear stories about you in Southern Vermont now and then, uh, even, even now for inspiring my entire generation and more by showing us what is actually possible. So thank you very much for giving me the honor and privilege of having this conversation with you today. I hope to see you around. I don't know when that's gonna be, but I'm looking forward to it. I do too. I hope we meet again soon or we meet soon. <laughs>